Queens friends, you're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast exploring what Christian sacred texts have to teach us about surviving, resisting, and thriving in our current context of white supremacist violence, which has existed on American shores for centuries. The music you hear throughout this podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. The group that you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back to direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Dale J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. My name is Margaret Ernst, and I'm recording today from my apartment in the Cumberland watershed in the land of the Eastern Cherokee, currently known as Nashville, Tennessee. If you want to know the indigenous land that you live on, you can look at a map at native-land.ca. I'm a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice Nashville, and this podcast is a product project of Surge Faith and Surge Action. Surge, or Showing Up for Racial Justice, organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast aims to resource us in that work, which means it's for everybody, but it's geared towards white people to build our resistance muscles, and for people working in white communities to boldly, strategically, and prophetically overturn white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. I have a lot to say about this week's text, so I'm going to just dive right in. The text for this week is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, which biblical scholars tell us is not just one letter, but it's a combination of several of Paul's writings. I'm going to read it. We're reading here from verses 516 to 521. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to God's self through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making God's appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What do you think of when you hear the word reconciliation? Maybe you think of reconciliation between family members or friends when there's been a conflict. Maybe you think of truth and reconciliation commissions, like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa or in Greensboro, North Carolina. In these commissions, the survivors of apartheid in South Africa and of racial violence and terrorism in Greensboro testified to what happened to them. It's a process meant to be a communal reckoning with the past in order to move forward. 
Reconciliation is also a concept used in accounting. It's the process of reviewing transactions and documentations and resolving any discrepancies that are found. I have an app that I use to help me keep track of my budget, and so when I reconcile my account, it means checking the spending against my bank records to make sure everything is accounted for. In Greek, the word used for reconciliation in this passage from 2 Corinthians is katalage. Aristotle uses it to talk about when money changers exchange equivalent values, and other ancient Greek sources use it to describe the adjustment of a difference and restoration to favor. All of these meanings in the ancient context had something to do with accounting for things and coming into right alignment. So what does Paul mean by the ministry and message of reconciliation? If we jump over to his letter to the Romans, we can see how Paul uses reconciliation nearly as a synonym for justification when he's talking about God's relationship to humanity. My New Testament professor in seminary, A.J. Levine, likes to describe the ancient understanding of justification as simple as justifying margins when you make a Word document. Justification, like reconciliation, simply means changing the alignment. Same, too, when, when Paul uses reconciliation in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about humans and the whole world's relationship with God. He says that in Christ, God reconciled the world unto God's self. And so by Jesus taking the accountability for human sin, human sinfulness is overturned, and humans return to right relationship with God. Paul says that our response is to be reconciled to God, and his call to action is that Jesus' followers are to carry the same message and ministry of reconciliation in place of Christ himself. In other words, we're to carry out the news and work of humans' reconciliation with God. We're to continue Christ's work. This kind of understanding of reconciliation, meaning God's reconciliation with humans, has carried over into Christian tradition. In Roman Catholicism, reconciliation is another word for the sacrament of penance or confession. It's when you get absolved for the sins committed against God and neighbor and are reconciled with the community of the church. Yet, reconciliation has also had an oversimplified definition in our culture today, especially when it comes to racial reconciliation. In common speech, and also in elaborate and well-funded initiatives and programs, racial reconciliation has come to mean the interpersonal reconciliation between people of color and white people, often on very individual terms. This comes from a very individualistic worldview and an individualistic view of racism. The idea that racism is just a problem on a personal level, like a disagreement or a misunderstanding or a matter of individual bias. There's also an implication in this view of reconciliation that there needs to be a mutual acceptance, that white people need to accept people of color and that people of color need to accept white people. The solution, then, under this framework is to change hearts, to get people of color and white folks to know each other and get along better, and racism will fade away. But this view of reconciliation doesn't take into account very real differences in power or ongoing acts of violence against people of color. 
doesn't take into account racism, that operates on a systemic and structural, structural and institutional level, no matter what's going on in the hearts and minds of individuals. This view of reconciliation operates pretty strongly both in conservative and progressive Christian spaces. I've seen efforts at reconciliation being framed as, for instance, combined multiracial worship services or pulpit exchanges on Martin Luther King Day. Now, I don't want to discount that there is a highly personal and interpersonal work that is a big part of racial justice. White people have a lot of work to do in healing how whiteness and racism shows up in us in ways that hurt people of color in our lives in everyday ways. And doing that healing work and that undoing, dismantling work inside of us may help us have better relationships with people of color in our lives. But it's important to recognize that an individual interpersonal reconciliation is not at all what Paul is talking about when he's talking about the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians, Paul actually says very little about reconciliation between people. Remember, it's all about reconciliation with God. If we understand that reconciliation with God in a longer, larger biblical context, we see how it's not just a spiritual rearrangement. It has concrete, material, political implications. Reconciliation is about creating a new order, a whole new creation, in response and as part of our coming into alignment with God. James Cohn is a very helpful guide on the biblical understanding of reconciliation. In his book, God of the Oppressed, Cohn reviews the view of reconciliation between God and humanity that would have undergirded Paul's understanding of reconciliation as a Jew. Throughout the scriptures and tradition that Paul knew, like with the covenant of Sinai following the exodus from Egypt, there is no reconciliation without liberation, Cohn says. And that means, he goes on to say, quoting here, that God's act of reconciliation is not mystical communion with the divine, nor is it a pietistic state of inwardness bestowed upon the believer. God's reconciliation is a new relationship with people created by God's concrete involvement in the political affairs of the world, taking sides with the weak and the helpless. Cohn writes that Jesus is the reconciler because he is first the liberator. In his life, Jesus is is identified with the poor and oppressed of the Roman Empire, and in his death, he takes on the sins of the world and the state of the world's despised people. And in a reinterpretation of classical atonement theory, Cohn believes that with Jesus' resurrection, God defeats slavery and death forever. Like Paul, Cohn emphasizes that God's reconciliation with humanity through Christ, it's God's initiative, not ours. And on top of that, Cohn clarifies that the fact that liberation and reconciliation are tied together tells us something very important. It tells us that humans, quote, cannot be human and God refuses to be God unless the creature of God is delivered 
from that which is enslaving and dehumanizing. The justified person is at once the sanctified person, one who knows that his or her freedom is is inseparable from the liberation of the weak and helpless. As a black liberation theologian, James Cone is interested in what this means for black life in America, and he's very clear. He says that from God's point of view, as revealed in the Bible, racial reconciliation means that God is unquestionably, quote, on the side of the oppressed blacks struggling for justice. He goes on to say that, quote, everything that white oppressors hold dear is now placed under the judgment of Jesus's cross. This is a difficult pill, he says, for white theologians and church people to swallow because they have so much invested in the status quo. This is going to be my last quote from Cohen's take on reconciliation. He says, God's reconciliation means destroying all forms of slavery and oppression in white America so that people of color can affirm the authenticity of their political freedom. In other words, reconciliation is not about a feeling in people's hearts, especially in white people's hearts. It's about change in material conditions, freedom from forms of slavery that is the consequence of God's victory over slavery and death in Christ's resurrection. The teacher and preacher Brenda Salter McNeil says reconciliation is an ongoing process involving repentance, forgiveness, and justice that restores broken relationships and structures to reflect God's intention for all creation to flourish. In her book with Rick Richardson, The Heart of Racial Justice, she writes that there is an important spiritual and personal aspect of reconciliation. It's just that it's not the only part. I think that they make an important point in this book that reconciliation with others is based on having a healthy sense of one's own identity. And for white people, that means coming out of a state of ethnic ignorance or having almost no awareness of one's own whiteness. And that you must have this healthy understanding, acknowledging and understanding race, in order to engage in reconciliation. Like we see in 2 Corinthians, the heart of racial justice talks about how reconciliation is first and foremost, however, the work of God. That means that it is deeply spiritual, that it's about God working in the world through us, with us, and on us. But like Cohn tells us, that does not mean that we don't have a role to play in what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. White people today, like me, are living in the context of the horrific legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow, and the ongoing exploitation and disinvestment in communities of color, and rising levels of white nationalist policy and violence as we, very, as we speak. We are living deeply out of alignment with God. So if we believe in the theology that Christ has destroyed sin and death, that means we will respond accordingly to continue Christ's work, destroying systems of oppression so that we can live fully into a fully reconciled relationship with God. I bet you're wondering when I'm going to start talking about reparations, right? Well, here we go. In later parts of 2 Corinthians, in chapters 8 and 9, Paul makes a big deal out of emphasizing to the Corinthians the utmost importance 
of the monetary collection he's asked for to support the church in Jerusalem. This actually may be the primary context and background of his correspondence with the Corinthians. You see, in his travels, Paul collected money from the Gentile churches, who would have had more privilege and power, and he collected this money for the poor and the church in Jerusalem, which was primarily Jewish. I'm reminded of how Cohn writes that there can be no reconciliation with God unless the hungry are fed, the sick are healed, and justice is given to the poor. The truth of that is right here in 2 Corinthians. Even here, yet again, liberation and reconciliation are linked. There's a connection between Paul's call to the Corinthians to carry out the ministry of reconciliation and his call to them to redistribute their wealth within the unjust imperial system in which they lived. It's wealth which, you could argue, they were bestowed unfairly through their privileges as Roman citizens. Rome extracted wealth from the land and labor of its colonies like Judea to distribute those resources to the elites and to Roman citizens. While the Corinthians themselves may not have been on the highest rungs of society, they still would have benefited from the empire and from the exploitation of Jews and other colonized people. Was the collection for the poor in Jerusalem then a form of reparations? Paul's impassioned plea for the Corinthians to contribute in big ways to the fund for Jewish Jesus followers in Jerusalem is inextricable from his call for them to be reconciled with God and to carry Christ's message of reconciliation. We also know that this collection for Paul was an important part of building, healing, and repairing relationships between Gentile and Jewish members of the Jesus, of the Jesus movement. He seems to have known something about power relationships and that the lives of these members of the movement did not exist on an equal playing field. Part of having reconciled relationships with God and with each other was the concrete action of moving wealth and resources. Years ago, on May 4, 1969, the Black Freedom Movement organizer James Foreman staged an action on white faith communities. One of SNCC's former core leaders, James Foreman was working with the League of Black Revolutionary Workers and the National Black Economic Development Conference, which is based in Detroit, Michigan. The action was the start of a campaign to pressure white churches and synagogues in the U.S. to pay reparations. On May 4th, Foreman stood up in the middle of the worship service of Riverside Church in New York City, a wealthy white congregation at the time linked to the Rockefellers, and he took the pulpit. In this disruptive action, he read the Black Manifesto, demands for $500 million in reparations from 
white religious institutions for their complicity in slavery and racism. The $500 million amount was estimated based on $15 per black person living in the U.S. at the time. And it says in the Black Manifesto itself that this is actually extremely little. Foreman and his colleagues knew this, and that's why they said that $500 million from white Christians and Jews, which they wrote were not only com complicit in the oppression of blacks in America, but of people of color across the world, were to be just the beginnings of reparations in the country, followed by a much larger amount demanded from governments and business. This was the first major call for reparations since Reconstruction, and it happened in the form of disrupting a white church. Towards the end of the Black Manifesto, which was to be read in copycat actions mimicking Foreman's disruption, it says that, the true tests of white Christians' faith and their belief in the cross and the words of the prophets will certainly be put to a test as we seek legitimate and extremely modest reparations for our role in developing the industrial base of the Western world through our slave labor. The Black Manifesto called on other black folks to disrupt white religious services like Foreman had, and many did. A week later, an interracial group of students occupied the offices of Union Theological Seminary, among other actions. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, James Foreman's letter to white churches. There's some stunning similarities, right? Sure, Paul was positioned quite differently to the Corinthians than James Foreman was to Riverside Church, and the tone is different, but the effect and demand is quite similar. Live into your values. Move your money. And for this reason, I want to say that still today, reparations are a necessary part of white Christians' reconciliation with God and an essential part of the ministry of reconciliation in the world. Reparations have a long history, going back to the years right after the Civil War, when people who had been enslaved in the South were promised 40 acres and a mule, rights to the farm the confiscated plantation land as compensation for unpaid labor during slavery. But instead of receiving that promise, the majority of land in the South was eventually returned to white owners. And not only that, as the gains of, the radical, of radical reconstruction receded and white power gained hold again, Former enslaved people were not only never paid for their unpaid labor, they faced even more brutal violence in the form of white terror groups like the KKK and years later racial apartheid under Jim Crow. Nonetheless, like with the Black Manifesto in 1969, the cry for reparations has not died. You may have heard in the news recently a lot about reparations, or at least more so than you might usually hear in the mainstream media. The success and vision of Black-led movement today has made reparations a buzzword and a topic of conversation. Some even say a litmus test for Democratic candidates for 2020. But unfortunately, most Democratic candidates are being extremely vague in what they mean when they're talking about reparations. Even Bernie Sanders said in the CNN town hall in a question about reparations, what does that mean? I'm not sure that anyone's very clear. While reparations is painted sometimes as an elusive, slippery, abstract concept, the reality is that black organizers have been more have more often than not been very clear about what they mean. 
Organized efforts calling for reparations have been highly specific in their demands for how money should be distributed and towards what ends. Black people and indigenous people have been telling us for generations what reconciliation means. Acknowledge the harm. Stop the harm. Repair the harm. Like in the practice of transformative justice, it's essential for how the harm is repaired to be defined by the survivors of racial violence, not the perpetrators. In the case of James Foreman and the Black Manifesto, the $500 million demanded from white churches and synagogues was to go to fund several things, a Southern land bank for Black farmers, Black-led media institutions, educational research and training institutions, funding to organize welfare recipients and welfare workers, a strike defense fund for Black workers, and capital for Black-run cooperative businesses. The Movement for Black Lives includes a detailed policy proposal for reparations in its platform called the Vision for Black Lives, which was created several years ago through a listening process with dozens of Black organizing groups across the country. We demand reparations for past and continuing harm, says the platform, with resources directed to education, economic opportunity, access to food, housing, and land. The platform not only has highly precise policy proposals, it also lists targets and suggestions for action to make reparations winnable on a local, state, and federal level. An example of reparations on an institutional level has recently popped up at Princeton Seminary, with black seminarians calling for 15% of the school's endowment to be dedicated to reparations after a report came out describing the seminary's role and complicity in slavery. The demand is aligned with the 15 to 40% of the school's wealth that is predicted to have been gained during slavery, and the students have listed exactly what they want that money to be spent on. Among their demands are full tuition for all Black students, student loan forgiveness for Black alums, and a Black church studies program. Reparations can also be enacted through individual choices around giving. The Northeast Farmers of Color Network are calling for reparations of land and resources via donation to people of color-owned farming projects. They've created a directory of farms and how to give in a map hosted on the website of Soulfire Farm. I'll include information about their reparations map as well as the Vision for Black Lives and the Princeton Seminary call for reparations in the show notes. In his famous article, The Case for Reparations, Ta-Nehisi Coates writes that when he talks about reparations, he says, quote, What I'm talking about is more than recompense for past injustices, more than a handout, a payoff, hush money, or a reluctant bribe. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal. Dave Ragland, who is with the Four Reparations Campaign, says reparations is healing of historical harm that set up the current world order. Do you, like me, hear echoes of Paul's new creation here? Do you hear how a new order spiritually and materially is what the ministry of reconciliation is all about? Getting reconciled to God means the collective accounting, the collective coming into alignment that is involved in reparations. And yet support for reparations among white Americans is wildly low, only polling at about 19%. 
We are far from even acknowledging the harm of racism, let alone stopping and repairing it. Recent Gallup polls done on race relations show that around 75% of white Americans believe that black folks are not treated any less fairly when it comes to access to education, housing, or jobs. I think that also part of this low support among white Americans for reparations is that the concept of reparations counters mainstream capitalist logic. Dominant American culture does not think communally, does not think about collective harm nor collective repair. We are under the illusion that our lives as individuals are all that matters and that we are disconnected from the past and disconnected from the future. White people are extremely resistant to being held accountable for the deeds committed by our ancestors or for actions on behalf of the government that benefited our ancestors. This, in fact, is actually very against the grain of the Bible, in which salvation and atonement is collective. The biblical concept of reconciliation is based on a value system of a just God, as we heard from James Cohn, and it hinges on a framework of repentance, which is a deep part of the DNA of not just Christianity, but Judaism and Islam as well. Repentance matters in a value system that prioritizes right relationship and community, not the bottom line, which is the priority of our economic engines and the social and cultural systems that support them. This is why reparations are so countercultural. Yet it should not be foreign to Christians who are called into the ministry of reconciliation. Sadly, most white Christians are worshiping at the altar of empire or respectability, rather than at the altar of the God of Abraham, Hagar, Sarah, Miriam, Jesus, and Paul. Will it continue to be so? If we want to carry out Jesus' ministry of reconciliation, we will start with other white people helping people to acknowledge the harm, stop the harm, and repair the harm. My call to action for all of us is to learn more about reparations. You can read the Black Manifesto from 1969 or read and sign the letter supporting the demands for reparations at Princeton Seminary. Be curious and notice what emotions come up for you when you're considering what reparations can look like on an individual, institutional, and structural scale. You can read the Vision for Black Lives policy platform on reparations. Choose one of the policy points on a local or state level and research whether there is a people of color-led struggle in your area, in that area of work, where that you can support and get involved with. How can you lend your networks and your resources to that struggle? I also want to challenge you to practice an elevator speech about reparations, focus on helping other white people under, to understand what it means. You may focus on people in your congregation, people in your family, but no matter what, try to emphasize how reparations can transform our society in ways that are healing for everybody. Be a bearer, like Paul tells us, of the message of reconciliation. If you're moved and convicted, this is also a really perfect time to get involved in reparations movement on a national level. The Fellowship of Reconciliation, the Truth Telling Project, and Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth have started a campaign for reparations that this spring, around Juneteenth, is specifically engaging faith communities around in reflection and spiritual preparations for reparations. They have a powerful pledge for faith leaders to take that starts like this. 
I pledge to approach reparations as a spiritual journey that speaks to my own humanity and liberation of myself with those most impacted. This is called the Four Reparations Campaign, and they're having an informational and mobilization call this Thursday, March 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll link the registration link in the show notes, and you can find out more about the campaign at www.4reparations.org. You can also start with developing your own personal practice of reparations. That might look like moving your money at any level to Black and Indigenous-led liberation causes or through direct support of organizers, especially Black, trans, and queer people. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript for this week will include these resources at the end to support your action. And let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thank you so much, Max. Your work is invaluable. Friends, may you be blessed. Today and every day, be emboldened in the radical ministry of reconciliation in your fight for a new creation.